Sound Design Live. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Berkeley, California. Welcome to Sound Design Live. I am your host, Nathan Lively, and I am joined today by British sound designer and composer, Steve Brown. Steve, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Um, so you're involved in so many cool projects. I almost just want to go down the list and say, what's acoustic ecology? What's a sound map? What's sound transit? Um, but we don't have time for everything, so I'm just going to pick a few. Um, and listeners should still go to your webpage where they can find a complete list of the projects that you work on. And your website is listenhere.co.uk. And people should also follow you on Twitter because you post a lot of good audio-related stories. I'm curious where you find all of these stories, Steve. Is, are they just things that you run across, you read in the newspaper, or are you following some other people that put out a lot of good articles? I follow a lot of people on Twitter, actually. I think Twitter's fantastic. I mean, uh, I get most of my audio news off Twitter now. Or I, I use something called scoop.it, where I, I store all, all this information, which um, I do selfishly, really, because I, I think it's all going to be useful to me at some point. Mm -hmm. Hopefully it's useful to other people, too. Can you tell us some other good people to follow for audio-related things on Twitter? You know, everyone from someone like Martin Ware, who was a big sort of pop icon in the in the 70s in the UK with bands like Heaven 17 and Human League, who's now a sound artist and involved in all sorts of other stuff. He's a, he's fascinating to follow. You know, um, Scanner um, is quite interesting, but he doesn't post very many links, but he's always quite lively. I mean, there's people like, there's a, there's a guy called um, Des Coulomb, who's um, uh, an audio recordist out in, who lives, an Englishman who lives in Paris. And his posts are just fantastic. I mean, he just posts some wonderful ambient sounds from Paris that are just, you know, you can just lose yourself in completely. So tell me about your main gig at the Royal Exchange Theatre Company in Manchester. This is a large multi-room performance space, just from the photos that I saw online and, and the information on the website. Um, so do you supervise a team of technicians there or do you design all of their shows? What are your responsibilities? Well, I'm, I'm head of sound for the Royal Exchange Theatre Company in, in Manchester. Um, there's a team of four who I manage. Um, a fantastically talented team of young sound designers, young technicians. I don't design all the shows there. I've designed probably near enough 100 shows there in my time. But we get a lot of guest sound designers now, and, uh, and my, my job really is to supervise their work and use the experience I've got of the, of the space. And it's an, it's an amazing theatre. Uh, it's a seven-sided theatre in the round, and it's worth looking up online to have a look at some pictures of it. Constructed completely out of steel and glass. Wow. In the centre of Manchester. It actually sits in the old Cotton Exchange in, in, in Manchester city centre, and it looks a bit like a lunar module has landed um, in the middle of this uh, very old and very old room, which is um, arguably the largest room in the world. And it seats 700 people, as I say, on three levels. It's a sound designer's dream in many ways. Uh, we can put sound above the audience, below the audience, inside the theatre or outside the theatre. It's about 400 tie lines around the building. 
Wow. And can put loudspeakers virtually anywhere um, to hopefully create a, a fully immersive surround sound experience for the audience. It's, it's a challenging space to work in. It's not a place where you'd probably want to design a show if you're new to sound design. There's a lot of choices. You have to make a lot of very um, critical decisions very quickly. What would you say is the most challenging thing for the guest sound designers that are coming in? They're most surprised with, they say, oh, I have to decide this and that. It's the sheer number of loudspeakers you use, I think. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we, we've got a large, a large system. You can, we can use anything between 70 and 120 loudspeakers. And for a drama show, that's actually quite a lot. I mean, you know, it's not a huge amount if you're doing a big musical. But for a Chekhov, that's a lot of loudspeakers. System is a Maya system. We have 56 UPM ones, um, a load of MSL2s, UPAs, mm-hmm. uh, USWs. Um, and that's, we've also got a lot of control ones which we use for surround sound. The biggest challenge for a sound designer coming in is really you, you need to have planned what you're going to do in, in quite a lot of detail before you start. Because we turn around shows quite quickly. If you're not clear about what you want to achieve, you can be going around in circles, literally. You can be going around in circles for, for hours and days, trying to get the effect you're after. What are some of your favorite parts about the space that, that make you really like to work there? Well, I think the most important thing about the space is that it's it's one that's really shared between the audience and the performer. I mean... Um, the audience enter through the same enter the auditorium through the same doors as the performers enter and exit in performance. Mm-hmm. So it really is a shared space, and no member of the audience is further than nine meters from the centre of the stage. Wow! Which is phenomenal. Um, it's a it's a a unique design, and it truly is a, a remarkable place to experience any theatre. And as as the sound designer, you can make the audience feel. As, as if they're in the exactly in the room right next to the actor, um, which indeed they almost are. Or you can make them feel like a tiny grain of sand on a huge desert. So you can really use sound as a focusing tool in a in a quite a unique way. I'm impressed that you're so active with professional organizations because I've been a member of the AES, uh, I was part of the Theater Bay Area, and I've tried contacting our local unions a few times, but I could never really see how I was benefiting, so I dropped most of my memberships, and I see that you're active with an international theatrical union. Could you talk a little bit about how the union, as well as other professional organizations you're a part of, affect your day-to-day work and the day-to-day work of other theatre employees and contractors and, and I don't know why people should be involved. The organisations I'm involved with, I wouldn't ever really call them unions, which I, I see as organisations which uh, campaign on behalf of employees for better working conditions and uh, are used to, as a negotiating tool. Um, for instance, OISTAT, which is the International Organisation of Sonographers, Theatre Architects and Technicians, uh, has a sound design working group, which I lead. And really, our primary objective is is to support and encourage professional relationships between sound designers internationally and encourage knowledge sharing and mentoring 
and also sharing a beer when we get together on the rare occasions we all get together from various mm-hmm. parts of the world. It really is an important organisation for global communication, really, between sound designers. I mean, I've I've lots of friends who are sound designers in, in the United States. I have lots of friends, obviously, who are sound designers in the United Kingdom. But since being um, part of the Oystat Sound Design Working Group, you know, I have sound designers who are acquaintances and friends in Bangladesh and India and Japan and the Philippines wow. and all these amazing places where, where we don't really understand what they do and how they work. And they have a lot to offer in, in terms of um, techniques, ideas, attitudes, which we can all learn from. And what I'm trying to do and what I try to do and what the Oystat Sound Design Working Group tries to do is pull all these people together and make a, a, really a, a, an international community of like-minded professionals. But our next in-person meeting will be at World Stage Design, which is happening in Cardiff next September, just about a year away from now, which is basically a, a theatre design exhibition and there's a number of workshops and presentations and all sorts of things. And I've been busy organising um, a number of events for next year's World Stage Design, which happens between September the 8th and September the 15th in Cardiff, in Wales. And it's, at, it's going to be at Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama, which is um, a fantastic, a fantastic um, institution well, they've got a brand new concert hall, which is amazing, and a brand new theatre there, um, which we're using. They've given me the concert hall for a week to uh, program various events, which is you know such a you know luxury. It's a fantastic honour yeah, as well. That sounds great. Well, tell me about one of the events that you're programming. I'll tell you who I've invited over. Who I'm eighty percent sure these people will be part of the event. Um, as a sound designer di- and director from India called Dinesh Yadav, who's a fascinating musician, um, theatre director, designer, sound designer, composer. Um, an amazing guy from New Zealand called Daniel Belton, who's um, a dancer and sound designer, who's, whose work you really need to check out on uh, YouTube and Vimeo. Okay. Um, there's a guy called Basam... I'm hoping I'm pronouncing all these names correctly, by the way. <laughs> Bassam Yakot from Egypt, who's a sound designer from Egypt, who's been doing some fa- fantastic stuff out there. A guy from Bangladesh called A.K. Azad, who's promised to bring over a small show of his, and um, I'm sure that'd be fascinating. From my conversations with him, I'm really excited. We have um, some people coming over from the States, obviously. We have Vinnie... Olivieri and Brad Berridge, who you may know as uh, Joe Young from the UK, and Nick Hunt and Rachel Nicholson from the UK, David Budris, hopefully from the US, Olivero Grasas, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Olivero Grakanin from Serbia, Adrian Curtin, who's a sound design historian. He's going to come over and, uh, and present some work. So there's, there's some fantastic people coming over. The idea is, I mean, the idea isn't really to talk about the te- technical aspects of what we do, but more about the art and, and the philosophy behind being a sound designer. How much does it cost to become a member, and can non-members get into the performances? 
you know, with Oyster, if you're a member of your local organization, so in America that would be USITT, um, which is the United States Institute for Theatre Technology, mm-hmm. you're automatically a member. You just need to take part. It's not it's not costly. I mean, it, this isn't going to cost you, you know, hundreds of pounds to attend these events. And to be perfectly honest, if you say you know Steve Brown, you'll probably get him for nothing anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> Are there tickets for non-members? There will be tickets for non-members, and you can join Oyster as as a um, unsupported member. Okay. But um, everyone's welcome. Um, we will find a place for everyone who wants to be part. Sound Design Live produces free, independent, personal reports to share techniques, technology and motivation from audio industry leaders. You can subscribe to the podcast at sounddesignlive.com or by searching for Sound Design Live in iTunes or SoundCloud. You've obviously worked on a lot of great projects. Your CV is really fun to read. Um, Theaters, galleries, and festivals. So let's talk for a minute about finding clients and getting jobs. Through my experience talking with other theater people on these podcasts, I've learned that most jobs come through networking with directors, production managers, and other sound designers. But how do you get hired to design an exhibit for the Victoria and Albert Museum, for example? I mean, those are some places that I don't know how to network to get in there. I obviously got a huge network of of colleagues and friends around the world, but the only reason I want to ever be employed is because I can do the job and my last piece of work earned me that um, position. I want my work to be able to speak for me and um, and I want people to employ me because they like what I do, not because I happen to buy them lots of cocktails and go out for dinner and, and, and um, generally socialise with them. It's very honourable of you. Well, I mean, you know, that's the, I mean, that, that's the bottom line as far as I'm concerned. Well, when I talk about networking, I'm not thinking of taking advantage of people or getting ahead when maybe I don't merit the position. Um, I'm just thinking of meeting the right people so that the right people know what I do and what I'm passionate about so that when some work comes up, they'll know that I'm perfect for that work. Sure. Well, to be perfectly honest, um, one of the best jobs I ever got was through exhibiting at World Stage Design in Toronto. Um, I just submitted a piece to be exhibited and um, a director heard it, liked it and offered me a job. Entering your work into, not competitions, but exhibitions is is extremely important if you can. Talk about a couple of exhibitions that you think are important for people to have their designs heard. Okay, um, there's there's two main exhibitions and I've spoken about them um, both during this interview, and one of them is World Stage Design. The other one's the Prague Quadrennial. And the Prague Quadrennial happens every four years in Prague, and it's the, the largest exhibition of xenography and theatre design in the world. And it's fantastic. It is such an inspiring, inspiring place to be for 10 days. And the work that I've heard there, both in terms of sound design and what I've seen in terms of set design and lighting design, is just phenomenal. 
if if you if you're a conceptual sound designer, that's far easier than if you're a technical sound designer. But if you're a conceptual sound designer who works mainly in drama, then they're fantastic vehicles for your career. Can you remember how you got your first job in audio? I'm completely untrained. Um, I left school uh, when I was 15 and I played a bit of football and I started to play the drums and I became a drummer in a rock band and made a few records and toured and all those things and and sooner or later I realised I wasn't ever going to uh, be the rock star I dreamed about and was looking around for other things to do and a, and a friend of mine's mother was a drama teacher and suggested I might like to work in theatre sound. So I checked it out. And I got a job at my local theatre and uh, operating. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And, uh, <laughs> but it was a great learning, a learning experience. But I, you know, I did a bit of stage lighting, I did crewing, I did whatever they wanted really. And uh, I was offered a tour of a musical by Sandy Wilson called The Boyfriend. And it was, you know, a cheap tour, shall we say. Um, but I just grabbed it with both hands and I went off on the road with this for six months and toured around the UK and learned lots about mixing a musical. Learned, uh, and it was a fantastic learning experience. And from that I was offered some more work on musicals but uh, I was offered a job with the Royal Shakespeare Company very early on. And I went off to work for the Royal Shakespeare Company for five years, six years touring around the world with various shows of theirs and I just think touring for, for me was just a great learning experience because you know you might might be out on the road and, and be faced with a, a huge problem of some kind and you have to rely on your your own skill and wit mm -hmm. to get you out of that problem and I just think that's a fantastic way to learn you know I've made every mistake a sound engineer a sound technician a sound designer can ever make and the th but, but I think the important thing is, is I, I only made them once. And the best thing to do is own up to it and put it right. You give some pretty high praises to a piece of software on your website called Audio Mulch. And I'd never heard of it before, so I took a look at it, I downloaded it, played with it a little bit. But um, could you talk about the, this piece of software and your design process, which I'm coming to imagine is not you sitting in front of a computer in a studio just working on sound effects? I love Audio Mulch, and I discovered it purely by chance on the internet about six or seven years ago, I suppose it was now. It's kind of a simpler version, and I hope the developers don't mind me saying that, but a simpler version, a more intuitive version of, of Max MSP or uh, Pure Data, which are two bits of software I've used as well. And um, But I don't find that they really help me. I, I spend far too much time working out the mathematics of something rather than just getting sound in and getting sound out, which Audio Mulch allows me to do. It's very intuitive. It's very creative piece of software which is basically it's basically designed for live performance i'm quite frustrated at times with some of the the um software that's available for theater sound playback because it's for me it's no more than than a media player and the real game changer in terms of theater sound design 
was the advent of the Akai sampler back in the late 80s, early 90s, with the Akai 1000 and then the 3200 and then the S5000 and S6000, which were not only fantastic playback tools, but great creative tools when you're in the theatre, when you're in the studio. And they allowed you to sort of create your sound design and play it back all in one box. And I quite like to be able to do that. I don't want to keep swapping from uh, a door to the playback software and back to a door to do a bit more editing and then back and keep importing and exporting sound files. I quite like to keep it all in one domain, really. Mm-hmm. And Audio Mulch allows me to do that. But what I would say is that what it it doesn't have a brilliant front end for theatre playback. So I think, you, you know, I wouldn't recommend it for everyone. And I certainly wouldn't recommend giving that piece of software to an inexperienced operator, for instance, to, to, to play back your show. Not unless you had chance to, to fully work with them and train them on it. Um, but it is a fantastically creative piece of software. And you can use it. I mean, it, it's fantastic. Even if you want to use a few VST effects in your, in your design or put a few VST effects over some microphones or anything, it's fantastic for something as simple as that or creating complete, very complex sound designs. I'd, I highly recommend every sound designer um, to download it and play with it and make their own, you know, obviously, you know, form their own opinion about it. But I think it's a couple of steps from away from being the perfect tool for me. So the process is always defined by the, the production I'm working on. Well, can you think of one where you've used Audio Mulch recently? Okay, um, one I've used Audio Mulch in recently uh, was a production of Miss Julie at the Royal Exchange, which is a Strindberg play. And I used that, I used audio motion several ways i used it um as a method of moving sound around the space using midi and the various mixes included within within the software and i used it to put vst effects on the dream sequence which was quite heavily mic'd and um you know i had a rack with a lexicon in and various spx 900s and all this sort of thing. and i couldn't find the effect i wanted but i knew that i had the effect on my my laptop i you know there was a, a wave effect a wave reverb that i really wanted to use and it took five minutes to set up which in in a technical rehearsal i mean time is of of the essence you need to be able to set things up very quickly and it just worked with a straightforward sound effect, if you're putting, if you want to add an effect to it, whether it be a reverb or delay, and and you're constantly importing and exporting from your playback software into a door, you're kind of busking it really when you're dealing with a lot of loudspeakers, because you, you can monitor it in stereo on headphones or through a couple of monitor loudspeakers. But then when you put it in a surround si- situation, you find it doesn't sound exactly how you, how you want it if you're using if you're using a lot of loudspeakers. So what Audio Mulch allows me to do is actually put those VSTs effects into the surround system. So you can actually mix it live with the actor, with a performer. And, and that's so important to be able to do that in the space. Very cool. And, um, and you know, I, I don't, I'm not a great fan of, of spending weeks in a studio and then 
taking all that stuff into a theatre and thinking, well, actually, that's not quite right. It sounded fantastic in the studio, of course. I want to work in the, in the, in the theatre space as much as I possibly can. But to be able to do that, you need to be able to work quickly. And, and, and certainly that this software allows me to do that. Can you explain what a metasurface is in Audio Mulch? Metasurface. It's. I don't know if you've ever uh, seen the Korg Chaos Pad. Yes, I think most uh, it's, of us it's those. similar. To, it's similar to um, a Chaos Pad. In fact, Metasurface. You can um, make a snapshot of a particular um, state that audio mulches in, and then change that state and take another snapshot. Put this all in a Metasurface and easily pan and fade between all these different states. I, I'm trying to work on a way of integrating it into a theatre performance because one of my great hopes is that we return to the, the time of having really good, skilled sound operators. For me, live performance should be exactly that. It should be live performance. And as soon as we put automation into it, then one element of that performance doesn't become live. And I quite like sound operators to be able to follow a performance or play, whether it's a play or a dance piece or a piece of music in real time and react to the performance in real time rather than pressing a button and that fade is always going to be five seconds because that actor's entrance or exit isn't always going to be five seconds it's going to vary so i'm looking at ways of of including uh, or using the meta surface to be able to give the operator to give the operator more control in a live environment a good operator is as much a part of a performance as a good actor or a good dancer this is an interesting topic because i think we've put a lot of emphasis onto setting a show and then being able to repeat it reliably from night to night but you would like to put more creativity and more chance back into the hands of the operator well you know live performance isn't film um Live performance is live performance, and we never can automate an actor, and we never can automate a dancer, or a comedian, or a violinist. We put all our trust in in actors to be able to recreate the same performance every night. We put all our trust in the dancer to be able to recreate the performance every night. There's no reason why we shouldn't put the same amount of trust in an operator, surely. So Steve, we're talking about um, audio mulch and using software and computers in live performance. And you are the audio supervisor at the Royal Exchange Theatre Company. So tell me about some of the steps that you take to make a computer super stable and ready to run a show without failing. <laughs> Do you have any tips? <laughs> Uh, well, I, I follow the same procedures as everyone else does to, to to do that. And I mean, you know, if it's a Windows-based computer, I strip off all the processes and programs that run in the background and, um, you know, make it very audio-friendly. I think the the fact that we have to, you know, have so many backups in place is not a good good thing. I mean, it frustrates the hell out of me sometimes to not have 100% confidence in a piece of equipment I'm using. So it sounds like you're saying that you take a lot of steps to make these things run well, but it's never 100% reliable. 
yeah, you can have as many backups as you want, but uh, you know, how long is it going to take you to to implement the backup? Are you going to miss some very important cues which the actors rely on while you're implementing the backup? I mean, it, you know, it's always been the case. I mean, you know, you could argue that when you're using reel-to-reel tapes, the tape could snap, as they often did, and 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 things like that. And what do you do in those situations? We're all beta testers now, and that worries me. Now, I think there are companies out there who are building computers and setting them up specifically for audio, but I can't really yeah. talk about that. I don't know much about it. There, oh, no, there certainly are, and um, that, that's fine. In fact, the other day, um, I was sat on my laptop, and I suddenly thought, I wish that I had a bunch of MIDI controllers built into my laptop keyboard. I could have done with some faders and some uh, rotary controls, and some pads, and I, you know, if anyone ever wants to build one of those, just credit me. You're welcome to royalties. <laughs> I guess we can only hope that the computer hardware gets fast enough that those background processes won't matter anymore. Yeah, and, and undoubtedly they will. When you're creating new designs, where is your favorite place to source sounds? Do you use field recordings or synths, or are you accessing online collections? I quite like to, whenever I can, I quite like to go out and record sounds. I've record, I've always got um, a recorder in my bag. I've got a huge library of recordings of my own, which I can manipulate in any, any kind of way to, to, to create um, a mood or a, a particular tone that I'm after. But I use libraries. I mean, we are, I think we all use libraries, whether that be, you know, sort of sound dogs or, Sound snap, you know, I have a listen through those and I occasionally use stuff from there. Um, we've got a, we've got a huge library of sound effects at the Royal Exchange Theatre. So, Well, Steve, I don't really have any questions about this, but through your site, I discovered apore.org. That's A-P-O-R-E-E.org, um, which is a super fun sonic map. So you can zoom in on anywhere in the world to listen to local field recordings Besides being fun, it seems like it could be a great resource for location-specific work, and I'm assuming that you've probably uploaded some stuff to that site. Yeah, I think there's nearly 100 sounds of mine on Apare. Um, it's a fantastic site, and uh, what sites like that are really good for are research. I mean, you might not always find the sound you're after, but you certainly get a flavor of, of, of a particular environment. And... Um, and they're just great fun to, to navigate around and, and listen to the world. So you, you have a lot of sites online, but um, if you were to pick one, where do you think would be the best place for people to keep up with your work? That's a great question, actually, because there's, there is a lot of stuff of mine on, online, and I'm not quite sure how that's happened. I think it depends what part of my work you're, you're interested in. And if you're interested in theatre work, then, then the best place to look is probably at my, the stuff I upload to SoundCloud. Um, if you're interested in my audio ecology and just general field recording work, then I've got a site on Podbean uh, where I just put a load of stuff up there that I record that, um, surprisingly, you know, I've got 145,000 downloads from that site, wow. which is phenomenal, really, because I don't, I've never advertised it. I've never sort of submitted it to search engines or anything like that. It just started off as somewhere, a little playground for me, really, and, and, and somewhere for me to store some sounds. And, it, and I get a lot of hits every day on that site and a lot of downloads. And I'm really pleased. I mean, they're, they're not necessarily interesting sounds. And, and, um, and I'm 
really quite intrigued by people who listen to them, and I, I kind of look on the Google map to where they come from. And, and what's in, what's very interesting is because a lot of the sounds are quite normal, everyday sounds, which aren't very interesting now. I think they'd probably be a bit more interesting in 30 or 40 years' time. But, for instance, during, during the sort of war in Iraq, and um, I had a lot of downloads from Iraq, and I'm from the Middle East, and the only thing I can figure is that people found this site and listened to sounds that reminded them of home. Wow, well, thank you for giving me so much of your time. Look, thank you, Nathan. I hope that you find something that's uh, usable out of this rambling from this Englishman. Sound design, live. Hey, this is Nathan. Thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed this episode of Sound Design Live, rate it on iTunes or send it to a friend. 